Well, this morning, I just kind of want to jump in right into the text in John 14. We're continuing our preaching series, The Upper Room, Five Hours with the Master, today with this third text in John 14, 5 through 14. And I just, I love this section of scripture that we call the Upper Room Discourse because there's so much here that Jesus is saying to his disciples. There's so much love here. There's so much depth in the pages of of this section of the Bible. And so I want us to rejoin the disciples in the upper room, just like we did last week, as we hear Jesus' final words before he is betrayed and crucified. So I want us to dive into the depths of John 14, 5 through 14. And if you're able, I hope I've given you enough time to turn there. Would you stand as we read God's word? Join us, worshiping from online. If you're able to stand as well, you can join in your Bibles. The text will be on the screen. John 14, verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is God's word. You may be seated. Growing up, I was a really curious child. I know that may be a surprise to some of you. Uh, It's basically a nice way of saying that I was really nosy and got into everything. And usually, I've heard that that was a sign of intelligence, but I don't know much about that. But I'll say that one of my shining moments of my curiosity happened on the highway. In our green Chrysler van, while staring at the wood panels on the door, I started to wonder how doors work. Specifically, sitting in the passenger seat, I was curious if doors open while a car is in motion. And my dad was completely unaware that my hand was on the door handle, but before he could do anything about it, everything went into slow motion, right? The the roar of the highway entered the car as the door starts to swing open. My father's arm shoots across my body with some kind of otherworldly strength and rips the door closed. And then all of a sudden, his voice is ringing in my ears with some kind of otherworldly volume, wondering what kind of otherworldly spirit possessed me to open the door while we were going 70 miles an hour on the highway, And all that I could think about was, huh, I guess car doors do open when you're on the highway. Curiosity killed the cat and and almost killed my younger self. And and I can't help it, right? I'm a curious person. I love to learn. I ask people a lot of questions. I, I ask too many questions if you can believe it. And this morning, as we step into our text, my question is, are we curious enough about Jesus to ask questions? How many questions do we ask of him? Are we afraid to ask questions, worried that it might reveal doubt or hesitation. Maybe we don't even ask because Jesus hasn't really affected our lives, and so whatever he's going to say, it's not going to really affect us anyways. This morning, we sit with the disciples overhearing honest questions from hurting hearts. 
And I want us to listen to Jesus' responses and be encouraged that Jesus meets curiosity with comfort, with truth that anchors the heart to God despite the storm of uncertainty and doubt that rages. In our text this morning, it is this curiosity produced by the disciples' desperation and worry that Jesus is leaving and they don't get to follow him that is met with the comfort of Jesus' call to believe, to have faith. In the famous book, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, in the second chapter, it starts by saying, curiouser and curiouser, and Alice is saying this when she's down in the rabbit hole just trying to figure out what is going on on her way to Wonderland, and she's, her neck is growing longer, and she's growing shorter, and she doesn't know what's happening. So as the disciples go down the rabbit hole in this story, and they don't know what is happening because the Messiah that they thought was going to destroy the Roman Empire is now dying to the Roman Empire, they wonder what in the world is happening. And it is this wonder, this curiosity that explodes out of Thomas like a question and actually out of Philip like almost a demand of Jesus. And in Jesus' responses to these two curiously desperate disciples, we get the two movements of our sermon this morning. The first movement is the way of disciples, and the second movement is the access of disciples. Notice that I said of disciples, not of the disciples, because this passage speaks to us today as much as it spoke to them then. The way that Jesus calls his disciples to take, the access that Jesus explains his disciples have because of him. All in response to a curiosity that's birthed in the hearts of disciples who are, they just love Jesus and they're having the hardest time understanding what in the world he is saying right now in the upper room. So I want us to start in verse 5 and looking at the curiosity of Thomas when he says, he calls Jesus out on what he appears, he perceives to be an inconsistency in what Jesus is saying. He says, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? I love Thomas here, right? Jesus, you say we know, but listen, we don't. We don't understand what you're saying. And if we don't know the destination, how in the world are we supposed to know the route? This is the same Thomas who back in chapter 11, verse 16, turns around to the group of disciples after Jesus has told them, you know what, I want to go see Lazarus and his family And he wants to go back to a town that actually just tried to stone him. Thomas turns around to the disciples and he says, you know what? Let's also go that we may die with him. Thomas just tells it like it is, right? Right? He confronts fear and confusion with honesty and he doesn't pretend to know what's going on or go with the flow just because. Right? He asks questions. He wants details. Stopping here, I I just want us to think about that. Right? How often do we struggle to just go along in order to get along? Do we nod our heads in our life groups or in conversations with other believers as if we really, we understand, but there's a lot of doubts kind of roiling underneath. We're hiding behind this false confidence, this false understanding, and we're never growing and learning and and even being corrected in love by brothers and sisters in the faith because we actually speak what's going on in our hearts. Jesus isn't afraid of questions and and neither is Thomas. He gets right to it. He asks questions ask questions of Jesus. What's going on? How are we supposed to plan to follow you if you don't even know where you're going? So in this moment, Thomas is revealing by his question and praise God that he does, that he doesn't see the difference between Jesus's path to the Father and the disciples' path to the Father. So Jesus clarifies what that is. Look at verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. This is probably one of the boldest theological statements in the whole Bible. Right? This is the core of Jesus' mission. This is an incredibly simple, right? It's only a few words. 
and yet profoundly, uh, just a profoundly distinct declaration about who Jesus is and why he came. Jesus makes it perfectly clear to Thomas, to the disciples, to us this morning, my way to the Father is through the cross, but your way to the Father is through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that is a really bold statement. You know, I like grammar, so I want you to notice Jesus' word choices here. His grammar, his vocabulary, he chooses his words very carefully. He's not just a way or a truth or a life, much like our postmodern world would like us to think. Right? Your truth is your truth. Mine is mine. Live out your truth. Find your own way. It's your life. You get to decide how you lead it. No, the Bible doesn't let us slide with thoughts like that. The Bible doesn't let us have Jesus as some nice alternative, a way alongside other ways. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Listen to how he says it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's not just showing us the way, testifying to the truth, and giving us an example about how to live. He and he alone perfectly personifies what it means to be truly alive. He and he alone can give true life. He and he alone represents truth because he is truth itself, and he alone can show us what is true. He and he alone embodies the only way to God, the only path to the Father's house, to heaven. He is the way. The one whose way was actually marked by the humiliating shame of a Roman execution on a cross, a death normally reserved for despised criminals. He is the truth, the one who was not often believed by his own family or friends, the one who was betrayed by one of his own, disowned by another, and actually ended up being abandoned by all of them, condemned by false witnesses. He is the life, the one whose beaten body would just in, in just a few days lie limp in the, in the dirt of a borrowed tomb. And to borrow a word from John's gospel, there is glory here. Right? There's glory in this apparent paradox for those of us who know the story of Jesus. After all, how can this be the way, the truth, and the life? Well, this is the same one who is described from the very beginning of John's gospel as the, as the source of all truth, as the one who has, is full of grace and truth. This is the same one who describes himself as the resurrection and the life after bringing Lazarus back from the dead. After feeding huge crowds, describes himself as the bread of life. This is the same one that the book of Hebrews tells us makes a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, the cross, crucifixion, glory in the paradox of weakness being the true strength of God, suffering as the way to glory, salvation made possible by a king nailed to a cross and come back to life three days later. He is the way, the truth, and the life. This is why Christians are later called in the book of Acts on multiple occasions followers of the way. Because they know that the way is Jesus. They finally get it. And if we're paying attention to what Jesus is saying here in John 14, 6, we see that he's not just telling them that they're supposed to imitate his example. Right? No, look at the second half of verse 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? The point is not just to follow what Jesus teaches or copy what he does, but to recognize him as the only way to the Father's house. The exclusive way to God, period, full stop, no other options. In Acts 4.12, Peter preaches to the Jewish leaders this same thing in Jerusalem. He says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. 
There is no alternative. Jesus' statement here doesn't allow for all roads lead to God kinds of thinking. He also doesn't even allow for accidental or anonymous allegiance. Right? You can't follow Jesus accidentally or anonymously. The way of Jesus is not some secret way that people might even be on without knowing that they're on as if his death covers anybody without acknowledging who he is. The way of Jesus does not allow people for, to be, for people to be covered by Jesus' sacrifice without knowing it, acknowledging him, and following him. In other words, if we want to be saved, if we want to know God, if we want to be spared the wrath and judgment of God on sin, Jesus is our only option. I mean, think about it. If you really think about it, it doesn't really make sense to just call him another way, right? If Jesus is just one valid way among many other valid ways, why in the world would he go to the trouble of dying on a cross? Why in the world go through that pain and that horror to open up just, you know, what would be one way among many other ways back to God, especially if there are already a few good options out there? It's because the cross of Christ is the only way back to God. Our sin carried a price tag. It carried judgment and punishment because God is holy and when we sin, we rebel against him against the creator, against father. We break, broke relationship and Jesus is the one who gave his life as payment for that sin to enable us to once again have a relationship with God. Jesus died so that you and I could live, that you and I could be who God created us to be and ultimately what that means is to be in relationship with him. Like one pastor says, it is this truth that inspires missions, motivates evangelism, builds churches and drives us to worship and gratitude. A watered-down gospel that changes the words of Jesus to functionally read that he is a way, a truth, and a life is no gospel at all. And I know, even as I say all this, that's not a popular idea, that this is actually viewed as potentially a dangerous idea for me to be saying up here. But this morning, the reason I have my Bible at the top of this pulpit is that I stand under the word of God to tell you what he says. So if you have a problem with this, we can talk, you can send the email, you can call, but all I'm going to say is, you've got to deal with Jesus. I'm not the one saying he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one saying that. Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. It is more dangerous to deceive ourselves that there are many options to God. And so the question is, if we call ourselves Christians here this morning, first of all, do we actually believe this? Do we actually believe that Jesus is the exclusive only way to God and to heaven? That really matters. And then if you do believe it, then you really have to think about how in the world you're going to explain this to people in our current cultural climate because that's not an easy thing to explain. Or I'll say it is potentially a very offensive thing to explain. How would you explain that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life to your neighbor, to your coworker, In love, but in truth. Jesus' words don't actually stop at verse 6 though, so we'll keep going in verse 7, Jesus starts elaborating on what he's talking about. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. I mean, this is how John is about to transition us to Philip's upcoming statement, upcoming demand. And here's why Jesus can be the only way to God, because of who he is. Because to know Jesus is to know God. And in this verse, I want you to listen to the challenge that Jesus is giving his disciples here. When he says, if you really know, if you really know me, the reality is that these disciples haven't fully understand, understood who Jesus is. 
right? They're slow to recognize him as he has revealed himself to be. Do you remember John 14, 1 last week? Believe in God, believe also in me. I mean, he is promising them something incredible here. He is continuing that idea, a relationship with God, a true relationship with God, if they recognize and acknowledge him for who he actually is. In the end, the desperate curiosity of the disciples of Thomas must come to face to face and grapple with the reality of who Jesus says he is so that they might believe in him, so that they might trust him and realize that to be with Jesus is actually to be with God himself. The true identity of Jesus confronts us this morning, and the question is, even in these few verses, is will we actually believe him when he says he is, when believe who he says he is? Believe who he reveals himself to be. Believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, our, our way has a name, and it is Jesus Christ, but, but that's not enough for Philip, right? Philip, like many of us, this isn't, uh, he's not so easily satisfied, right? Which brings us to our second movement, the access of disciples. We talked about the way of disciples is Jesus and Jesus alone, and now we're looking at the access of disciples. Listen to Philip interrupt Jesus in verse 8. Lord, Show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Right? I mean, Jesus just finished saying one verse earlier, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And to be honest, as someone who's just as slow to learn as Philip is here, I'm actually really grateful that he interrupted and that he said something and kind of revealed what's happening in his heart. Notice what he's actually saying here. Read between the lines. He is essentially denying what Jesus has just said by his demand. With the kind of false modesty, he tells Jesus what will be enough for him to believe. Like, this is all I need. I need a little bit more, and this is what I need. Show us the Father, and that'll be enough. We'll trust you then. I mean, I'm struggling here, Jesus. Give me something. But the struggle doesn't really excuse its misunderstanding here. I mean, if you know what he's really asking, right? It is a praiseworthy thing to ask, hey, I want to see God. But it's also a dangerous ask, because the Bible says that no man can see God and live. And yet the subtext here is that they have indeed seen God because they've been with Jesus. And not only that, not only have they lived, but he's been inviting them into relationship with himself. But Jesus doesn't let, just let the subtext be here. We, we know all of this is in our head and we might anticipate a rebuke from Jesus, but instead we get a revelation from the word of God himself. Even if it is marked by a little sadness. Look at verse 9. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus reveals that in his good desire to see God, to see the Father, Philip can't see what's right in front of him. Better yet, who's right in front of him? Right, God in the flesh. And the sadness in Jesus' question to Philip is a little bit amplified when we reflect back on the story of the Gospels where we actually find that some of Jesus' opponents and enemies actually understand who he is a little bit quicker than his disciples. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time? Don't you know me, TVC? Don't you know me, Christian? That, qu- that question hit, hit me in the gut this week. It was a really hard question to process. Through. I mean, It's not this, that Jesus making is some nasty accusation here. You don't really know me. But a, it's a question of intimate relationship. Don't you know me, Eric? When I doubt, when I struggle, when I question, when I test God even, when I forget, Eric, don't you know me? Haven't we been together for such a long time? 
Remember who I am. That's, I mean, that's what Jesus is essentially saying here. We've been together. Remember who I am. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am God. And it's, it's kind of a challenge here to us, too, as we think about if we struggle to evangelize or, or be on mission locally and globally. Like, this is a challenge in here, not because Jesus is saying you have to do these things, but because if people want to see God, if we want people to see God, then what Jesus is saying here is that they need to hear about, experience, and respond to the real Jesus and the proclamation of the gospel. They need to meet Jesus, because that, if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. That's how you see God. He is the only way to God. Or to say it like the text says here, the Son and the Father are one. Right? They're, they're one, and, but they're unique. And this is the beauty and complexity of understanding who Jesus is as the God-man. Right? We can use the language of Son and Father and talk about how they relate and how they act, but they're also one God. It's the paradox of the Trinity, three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. But we don't have all the time in the world to unpack the Trinity today, so don't think that I was about to go systematic theology on you. But I do want to recommend a, a little book that has been helpful to me and that I think is really accessible. It's called, I don't have it on the screen, but it's called Delighting in the Trinity. We're actually reading it as a pastoral staff right now. But I read it a year ago, and, and there's not many Christian books that make me want to worship and sing, primarily because I don't sing well. But this book did that. Because it is, it is not just accessible and easily to, like, easy to understand, but what, what the author does is he walks through the Bible and explains not just why God is a trinity, but why God needed to be a trinity, what it means for our faith, what it means for understanding God, not just as a nice theological thing to understand, but a fundamental reality and characteristic of who God is. More than a characteristic, the essence of who God is. He is a trinity. And that's why what Jesus says here in this text matters so much. So I won't make you wait to buy and read the book to find out. I will keep moving. Right? Because look at verse 10. Jesus continues to talk to Philip directly. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? Don't you believe this, Philip? If you do, then you know that the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Notice Jesus' word choice here again. Jesus connects his words to the works of the Father. Essentially, what Jesus is saying here is that what he has been teaching them is not just some fancy new philosophy or way of life that they get to kind of toss around in their heads. It is the work of God among them, revealing himself to them, showing them who he is. Essentially, Philip's request has already been granted in Jesus. They see the Father and his works in Jesus and his words. And yet, Philip, along with all of his disciples, is slow to believe this, slow to understand. He's under this intense emotional and intellectual pressure, just trying to make sense of what Jesus is saying here about betrayal and death and leaving and, and not being able to follow him right now. And, and now Jesus is making some really intense claims. And, and as these thoughts are beginning to race, Philip hears Jesus' next words. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Believe me. Earlier, he told the disciples to believe in him, 14.1. But what he's commanding them now to do is to believe in what he is saying. Right? Belief in Jesus has to be personal and intimate. You believe in Jesus. There's a personal relationship with him. He's not just some abstract ideology. We believe in a person. But along with belief in Jesus comes belief in the truth of what he says. That what he teaches is true. That what he says about us and the world and God is all true. What is at stake here? is the reliability of Jesus. 
the trustworthiness of Jesus. Can we believe him? So TVC this morning, do we find Jesus reliable? Do we take him at his word even when we don't fully understand what he is saying? Do we come to the Bible with faith-filled questions rather than suspicious doubts? But don't get me wrong, Jesus can handle both of those. But there's a difference between believing Jesus to be reliable and wrestling with what he says and thinking he is not to be trusted and trying to make sense of his words in the Bible. The challenge here is, that, as one commentator put it, that truth faith identifies Jesus with the Father and takes him at his word. That true faith identifies Jesus with the Father and takes him at his word. Period. But life is complicated, right? And Jesus knows that. He knows us so well. Look at the text. He says, listen, if you find it difficult to take me at my word, then take me at my works. Right? Let what I have done before you point to the truth of what I am saying. So what Jesus is saying here is that not just that his works, his miracles can produce faith and belief, but that they actually function as, as these, on this deeper level as signs that the kingdom of God has come and is inextricably linked, interwoven with Jesus himself. In other words, there are these uh, pictures that line the path to Jesus and point to him for who he says he is. As one commentator says, these are non-verbal Christological signposts. They preach the gospel to us as we see them and as we read them. If we would only follow them, we would believe that he is who he says he is. Notice also that Jesus gives us options here for faith, which is a kind of a strange thing to do. Right? Either believe what I say or believe what I do. And I want to point it out because I want you to see what Jesus is doing here. Because too often, um, we can get caught up in how people meet Jesus, right? And whether or not the way they met Jesus was right or wrong. But the posture that comes out of Jesus' statement here is that we don't have to be so worried about how people came to faith in Jesus. What we should be more interested in is that that faith is true, marked by a real trust and commitment in the real Jesus. All of those things are important. A real trust and commitment to the real Jesus. Think about it. Some of you, I don't know all of you and all of your stories, but I can imagine in a group this size, some of you came to Jesus because his love drew you in. He, just, he was just expressing his love. You, you were just attached. You were just, oh man, he loves me. Some of you came because you were worried about punishment. Others of you were attracted by the way other Christians lived out their lives. Some of you were compelled for whatever reason to pick up the Bible and read it without any other witness of anybody else. Some of you, the truth claims of Christianity were intellectually convincing. For others of you, it was the life and legacy of your family that testified to you the gospel. And at the end of the day, God, our merciful Father and the King of the universe, uses every one of these scenarios and so many more to bring us to him. And we cannot say that one is better or worse. In fact, we, we shouldn't even think that, one, that any one of these ways produces faith because it is God by his spirit that uses these methods to produce faith. It is, the one, it is God who is the one who produces that faith, not any one of those ways that he brings us. True and saving faith that expresses a real trust and commitment in the real Jesus. TVC, this morning, would you remember how Jesus drew you to the Father? Would you remember the way that God brought you to himself? Would you ask the question, is your faith a real trust in the real Jesus as he reveals himself to be in his word? That's what Jesus is talking about here. The access of disciples is in Jesus and Jesus alone. 
Because when we see Jesus, we see the Father. Believe him when he says it. And now by establishing this, as we come to the end of our passage, Jesus is now able to explain the implications, the results of this being true. Look at verse 12. In our final verses here, Jesus lays out these two benefits of this reality, two benefits of the fact that he's leaving. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. The access of disciples here results in something absolutely incredible, doing greater works than Jesus' works. That sounds crazy. Like, what does that even mean, right? Now, this is the first benefit, and it's a passage that's so easily misused when it's taken out of the context. So I want us to really dig in in the context to explain what Jesus actually is talking about here. Because I want us to notice a few things. The first thing I want us to notice is that Jesus is shifting, right? He's shifting from his command to believe to now explaining what the future mission of his disciples are going to be because of that belief, right? He explains that they will have God's help, and and he does it by describing what they're going to do precisely because, and that's a very important word, because he is going to the Father. So don't miss this. What Jesus says is that those who believe in him, all of his disciples, not just these guys, will do what he is doing and even greater things, and it is all based on the fact that he is going to the Father. In other words, the future work of these disciples is still going to be enabled and empowered by Jesus himself. Don't mix this up. Jesus is not comparing and contrasting his works with the disciples, right? He's comparing his works before going to the Father to his works through his disciples after going to the Father. The comparison is between Jesus' works in the flesh before the cross and Jesus' works after his resurrection and exaltation through his people. What we have to remember when we talk about these greater things, is that the works we do here and now, the greater things are because they are Jesus' work through us by the Holy Spirit. We can't mess that up. So then we go, what in the world does greater mean, Eric? Riddle me this. I'm glad you asked. One of the first options about greater is it means something like bigger or better or more amazing and wonderful, and that's kind of a hard option to entertain because it's hard to imagine greater things than Jesus did in terms of bigger and better. I mean, he walked on water, he changed water to wine, he fed thousands and thousands of people, he came back from the dead, he resurrected a number of people in his ministry. I don't know if we can say that greater means greater than that, because it's pretty spectacular what he did. But another option might be more. More in number, maybe wider in influence. And, and maybe, right? If you look throughout the history of the church, the history of Christianity, the, the history of the, the church has been stained with a lot of dark stains, there are some beautifully bright spots. The amount of aid that church, I mean, starting hospitals, loving and serving the most vulnerable in society, incredible works of mercy and, and education and resources through the church. And, and it's a faith that started in a tiny country in the Middle East and has spanned the globe. So maybe he means more, but Jesus could, could have used some different words to indicate more. That's not the only word that he had accessible to him. What I, what I think is happening here, there's something underneath this word, and so bear with me here. We're going to jump to Matthew 11, 11, and I want you to look at this verse where Jesus says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I think this passage actually gives us a window to what Jesus means in our text. I mean, look what he's doing in Matthew. He's saying, John the Baptist's greatness, he's establishing that and then comparing that greatness with the least in the kingdom of heaven. 
And what I think is happening here and in Matthew is that Jesus is talking greatness in terms of timelines. Right? Those who participate in the kingdom of heaven are greater than John the Baptist precisely because they get to participate in the kingdom of heaven. Right? For all that he did, John the Baptist is still pre the kingdom of God coming. Everything that Jesus did on earth was to announce and lay the foundation for the kingdom of God coming, which is why he can tell his disciple, you'll do greater works because I go to the Father. Because when he goes to the Father, the kingdom of God through the cross and the resurrection power is here and spreading and going. The works are greater because they get to participate in the work of the kingdom on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection. We have the advantage of participating in the kingdom on the other side of the finished work of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in each and every one of us. The greater works of the disciples are the works done by Jesus through the Spirit in his disciples as the kingdom of God continues to grow. But the text says that this really is only for those who put their faith in Jesus. So don't get me thinking that it's going to be absolutely everyone. This is for those who believe Jesus is the complete revelation of God. It doesn't let us bypass 14.6 as we get all the way down to 14.12. We must believe in Jesus. So the question that bubbles to the surface here is, are we involved in these greater works of the kingdom, TBC? Is our faith in Jesus and our dependence upon the Spirit driving us to give ourselves away for the sake of the gospel, to step into hard conversations, to fund risky, gospel-believing adventures in spreading the gospel, the kingdom of God. I mean, do we believe in God and depend upon his spirit enough to believe that he will do greater works in and through us by his spirit here and across the globe? How are we participating in the kingdom of God here and now? This participation, though, as we get to the end of a text, is not just in works done for Jesus and for others. It's also participation of prayer. These greater works are only done as a result of prayer. And so this is the second benefit that Jesus gives. Look at the last two verses. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. As if the previous verse didn't have enough minds in trying to figure out what in the world he means in that context, here we get another passage that is difficult to understand when taken out of its context. Because the second benefit of access is answered prayers. But you've got to listen to how Jesus talks about it. Right? He's going to do whatever is asked of him, so long as it first is asked in his name, and second, asked with the goal of glorifying the Father and the Son. If you haven't heard it before, I'll say it now. Asking in Jesus' name is not some magical incantation you add to the end of your prayers to just make sure it works. It's not the method of transforming Jesus into an all-powerful genie who will take care of every need and desire we have. It's not the the way asking in Jesus' name is not the equivalent of rubbing the genie's lamp and having someone come out to sing, you ain't never had a friend like me. It's not what that is. Asking in Jesus' name is to ask in clear alignment with who Jesus is and what he is doing in the world. It is to approach God united to Christ, identified with Jesus. It is to ask for what Jesus wants to happen, to ask according to his desires and purposes, not our own desires and purposes. So the question that follows is, do we actually know what Jesus wants? It's not a hard question to answer because we have what Jesus wants in his word. This is why jumping into the word of God should be what it it, it inspires our prayers, it fuels and fills our prayers. It informs and shapes our prayers according to Jesus' will and Jesus' character. You get to know Jesus by spending time with him in the Bible. 
So TVC, is this what we mean when we pray in Jesus' name? Jesus gives us this other requirement, though. Right? He says that answered prayers, they are prayed for the purpose of glorifying the Father in the Son. And this is where the two of these two requirements are tied tightly together because the way to glorify the Father in the Son is to ask in Jesus' name in complete agreement with who he is and with everything that that name represents. And if we would do that, TVC, and I really mean this, if we would do that, there is no limit to the power of that kind of prayer. There is no I will do whatever you ask in my name. That is a bold prayer to pray. Prayer that comes from faith in Jesus, that testifies to our union with Jesus, and is prayed for the purpose of glorifying Jesus, glorifying God. Is this how we pray? The access of disciples is marked by faith, a real commitment to the real Jesus. It comes with greater works and answered prayer, as Jesus defines greater and prayer. So how does the Bible define that? It defines it in the name of Jesus. Disciples are disciples in the name of Jesus. We pray in the name of Jesus. We live and move in the name of Jesus. We believe in the name of Jesus. Sitting there in the upper room with the disciples, hearing Thomas's honest but misguided question, and Philip's praiseworthy but slightly unbelievable demand, Listening to Jesus' response as we come to the end of our passage, I want us all to consider how God is striking our hearts with it this morning. We all have to consider this because maybe reading this text, you need to be reminded to keep asking questions. I'm going all the way back to the beginning of the sermon. I mean, after all, seeing Thomas and Philip do it and then seeing Jesus' response and how he, he doesn't just respond, doesn't just avoid answering questions, doesn't respond with a rebuke, but answers truthfully and compassionately with himself. I hope that encourages you to keep asking questions because he's not only big enough for your questions, you'd probably be surprised by how he's going to answer them. Or maybe you're challenged about what it means to truly believe in Jesus, right? Maybe you're challenged by, about taking him at his word and believing that what he says is true, not only that he is God, but he's the only way to God. And maybe you were challenged and even a little bit offended by Jesus' exclusive claim in this passage my encouragement to you is to not let that thought or feeling pass you by, even as uncomfortable as it might be. That you would wrestle with it. That you would actually bring it to God, whether or not you believe in him in prayer. And bring it to his word. Interrogate. See if it holds up to examination. If Jesus really came back from the dead, then all of his claims, especially this one, are not obstacles we get to like squeeze around. They're truths we have to deal with. The way of disciples is the true Jesus, and there's no way around him. You have to deal with Jesus. You don't get to avoid him. Or maybe what hits you right now is Jesus' promise of greater works and answered prayer. Maybe you're wondering, Lord, how, how, what are you calling me to in this moment? How do I participate in your kingdom? Maybe this is where your heart is being stirred. The access of disciples is in the Son who reveals the Father, and our belief in him means we get the privilege of participating in his kingdom in complete dependence upon his spirit by prayer. Is this how we live our lives? Is this how we as a body of Christ live? Not just trying to do great things, but doing the great things that Jesus wants us to do. Aligned with him, shaped by him. In Jesus' name is not just the way that we pray, but the way that we live. Amen? Amen. And I want us, as we go to prayer, for you to think about that. To wonder, what, what is God stirring in my heart? That you wouldn't leave here just going, you know what? I guess next Sunday I'll think about something else. That it would work on you this week. 
that even as you watch online, that it would work on you this week. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. There is no way around you. And as we are confronted by that reality this morning, we pray that you would shape us with it, that you would align our understanding of truth to you, that we would define life by you, that we would seek you in prayer and by your spirit, informed by your word, that we might be following the only way to God. Jesus, we pray this morning that you would continue to change us by the power of your spirit, that we might recognize you as the perfect revelation of the Father. Shape us as a Jesus community, not just some religious community. We long to be like you, to follow you, to pray according to your name. Would you shape us with your will and your desires and your purposes in the world? Your word never comes back empty. It accomplishes what you desire. It achieves the purpose for which you sent it. And this morning, we pray that that would be true in our lives and in our hearts. Jesus, we trust you. We believe you are who you say you are. Would you help us in our doubts and our worries to trust in the presence of your spirit? Amen. Now, before we respond to God's word by singing together, I do want to invite one of our elders, Jim Lenane, up to share an update on our senior pastor search, um, and then I'll pray after that search. Jim. Thank you, Eric. Good morning, TVC. My name is Jim Lenane. As most of you know, uh, I am uh, privileged to be one of the elders here at WBC and Tri-Village Church. Lois and I have been attending here at TVC since its launch over four years ago, and we just, uh, we love you, we love this, this church. As you know, the Senior Pastor Search Committee has been seeking God's will in the search for our Senior Pastor for WBC. Thank you all for uh, participating in that and also for your continuous prayers. This morning, it was our intention today to announce that uh, we were recommending a candidate, a candidate from outside the area and outside of WBC. But just three days ago, we received a call from the candidate that he was withdrawing his name from consideration. Not exactly what we expected. But we are reminded in this process that God is sovereign and that his timing is perfect. So your elders are praying and developing plans for just how to best proceed in this journey as a church. And as God directs us, we are grateful for his sovereignty. It'll take some time as we seek his will going forward. But this morning, I would like to lean on Proverbs 16.3. Commit to the Lord in all you do, and he will establish your plans. So I pray, Lord, or pray with all of you that we would continue to lean on the Lord during this time. Eric? Okay. God, we come before you knowing that you are the one who made us into your people, that you are the head of the body of your church, that you are the shepherd who oversees your sheep in this local family of believers. We pray expectant this morning, expectant to continue to see your hand at work, to continue to feel you leading and guiding us. We are grateful that you have indeed answered our prayer for guidance and direction, even if it is not the way we thought it would go. We thank you for continuing to lead your people in this search process. And so we pray 
for continued wisdom and discernment, humility and expectation that you will bring the under-shepherd that you want to pastor your people here as senior pastor. We pray for the energy and endurance of the search committee and elders who have to restart a search process. We pray that you, by your spirit, would lead them in this time of pivoting in response to your sovereignty. And we are confident this morning because our confidence is in you. We are hopeful this morning because our hope is in you. And so we trust your hand in all of this. Excited to see what comes next and how you will call us as a church body into deeper relationship with you and with each other in this next season for Wheaton Bible Church across all of your campuses. You are king. You are good. And best of all, you are father. And you give the good gift of your Holy Spirit to your children. And so we trust in the guiding of your spirit in all of this. Amen.